Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians, the sixth chapter, I want to read together verses 12 through 20. First Corinthians 6, follow along in your copy of Scripture as we read, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's have a brief word of prayer. So our Father and our God, I pray that as we consider this area of stewardship that is often neglected, that you would challenge us to be faithful. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I think the concept of the body as a temple is really universally accepted, not just by Christians, but by everybody. Everybody thinks of their body, whether they acknowledge it or would articulate it in this way, as some kind of a temple. Now, by temple, I mean this. A temple is the physical structure where one's God resides and is worshipped. It's the place where he's worshipped. So the question, of course, in this regard is, who or what is the God that resides there in that temple? All right, so think with me about this. We've all seen the pictures of the president's son, right? Shirtless, cigarette dangling out of his mouth, eyes glazed over, Clearly, the God that he worships is the God of hedonistic pleasure in all of its forms, a chemical high, drunkenness, immoral sexual gratification. And then there are those aging Hollywood starlets who pour tons of money into things like uh, Botox and facelifts and other procedures for you know, some kind of a desperate attempt to retain youth and a youthful appearance. That's their goddess. I'm reminded of a line in the Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Sunset Boulevard. Maybe you know that story uh, where there's this aging starlet who's trying to look like 20. And the guy who she's uh, seduced says, there's nothing wrong with being 50. 
unless you're acting 20. Well, that is the goddess of so many who want to keep looking like they're in their 20s. Or how about the guy that lives at the gym, lives at the gym, lifting weights, admiring his bulging muscles in the mirror, his God being a chiseled physique, uh, extreme notions of fitness. Reminds me of the, one of the coaches that uh, was in our high school when I was a teenager. Uh, I was on the track team, and uh, on the track team, we had, to, we had to do weightlifting three days a week, and we'd go to the weight room. He was always there. And the guy was, the guy was buff, as they say. And he would, he would get done uh, doing his bench pressing, and he'd put the weights back on. The, this, was, this wasn't the machine. This was the free weights. He put the weights back on the bar, and then he'd get up, and he'd do this kind of a thing, you know making his muscles pop, and he's just worshiping his God. And then on the other extreme is the, the couch potato, whose God is junk food or gaming or Netflix binging, and it shows. His motto is that which we read in uh, our text today, verse 13. And Paul is quoting a common motto that was stated at that time, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. And on and on we can go with different expressions of people um, uh, worshiping in the temple or at the temple of their body. Well, for the last several weeks, we've been discussing areas of Christian stewardship and responsibilities that we have as followers of Jesus to be stewards in these areas. We talked about the stewardship of our time, that of our talents, and the stewardship of of our treasure. There's one area of Christian stewardship that is often overlooked and is, I think, neglected, and that is the stewardship of the temple, our temple, the body. We see in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that Paul asserts that, the Bible asserts that, your body, if you're a follower of Christ, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple. But the God of that body, the temple, is supposed to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible. And you are therefore, as he says in verse 20, to glorify God in your body. Well, if you're going to fulfill that duty, that responsibility of glorifying God with your body, then that requires proper stewardship of the temple. I'm going to look at this in four different ways, beginning with the well, the starting point of Christian stewardship of the body, and that is regeneration. Proper stewardship of your temple begins with regeneration. Let me explain what I mean. Because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, prior to the fall, uh, you know, God made man a living creature. He breathed into his nostrils the, the breath of life, and he, he's alive. And there was no death. And as, a living, as one living without the effects of the curse, without the effects of the fall, the, the temple, the, well, the body, would have lived indefinitely. There was no decay, there was no corruption, there was no sin affecting that body. And then came the fall. And God had warned Adam, the day that you eat of that fruit that I've forbidden you from eating, you will surely die. 
And that death occurred in two arenas. There was, of course, spiritual death. That, that was, the effects of that were immediate, obvious and immediate. The other effect was spiritual death, or I mean physical death, the death of the body. There was death and dying that were the result of that fall. So because of Genesis chapter 3, because of the fall, naturally, naturally, you are both dead and dying. Look with me a couple pages forward into your Bible, the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, makes it clear that spiritually you are dead in trespasses and sins. It says that in verse 1, you who you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And in verses 4 and 5, it says, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So spiritually, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Physically, you are dying. Even as Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed unto man once to die. It's often been very morbidly but accurately said from the moment you take your first breath brought into this world, and even prior to that, we could assert, uh, when life begins, so too is the process of dying. So naturally, you are both dead and dying. It is regeneration, though, that gives life. So here, again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse part of verse 5, in verse, he says, when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive. Regeneration gives life. I want you to notice the mechanics of that regeneration. It is the gracious work of God. The last part of verse 5 points that out. When we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So that regeneration is the gracious, gracious work of God. Now, drop down to verses 8 and 9, and you see that that gracious work of God of regeneration is evidenced by your faith in Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the regeneration that gives life is a gracious gift of God, a gracious work of God that is evidenced by your faith in Jesus, and the result of that is eternal life as you are united, in, united with Christ. Verse 5 again, He made us alive together with Christ, verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Regeneration gives life eternally. When you are regenerated by the grace of God in salvation, you become alive. You are no longer dead in trespasses and sins. And, if, and instead of the process of dying ending with terminal death, you have eternal life. 
Now, what's that got to do with the, the, the stewardship of your temple? Simply this, that regeneration is the condition for the restoration of your body. Regeneration is the condition for the restoration of your body. You realize that as 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, your body, this physical body in which you are inhabiting right now, will be raised from the grave. Look at verse 14, 1 Corinthians 6. God hath raised up the Lord, the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Now, would you flip over to chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians and look at verses 51 through 54. And what we discover here is that regeneration as the condition for the restoration of the body will bring about an eternal transformation of the physical body. Verse 51 says, Behold, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead, those who are in Christ, physically dead in the grave, will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been regenerated by the grace of God, and that is evidenced by your faith in Jesus. You've called upon him to save you from your sin then you have eternal life. And though this body may die, it won't stay in the grave. It won't stay, it won't stay in its decayed, decayed state. At the resurrection, this body will be raised from the grave and it will be changed into an incorruptible, eternal body. And I want you to notice the alternative. What is the alternative? Every body will be raised from the dead. The book of Revelation chapter 20 brings that out, verses 11 to 15. John writes, he says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And then he says this, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hell gave up, delivered up, uh, death and Hades delivered up the grave, uh, the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades, or death and the grave, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. All right, so look, apart from regeneration, the alternative is that this body in its resurrected state will be cast into eternal lake of fire. Because of regeneration, though, that is the regeneration that is the condition for the restoration of the body, which will live eternally. Now, Again, what does that have to do with stewardship? Listen, 
the prop, proper, ten, trop, proper temple stewardship begins by ensuring that your body will be perfected and live forever. Let me ask you, if this event in Revelation chapter 20 were to occur today, and you were to stand before God for your eternal judgment, is your name in the book of life, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Is your faith in Him and His work on the cross for your soul's salvation? If not, then, well, there's no eternal life. There's only eternal death. The proper stewardship of the temple begins with making sure that your physical body will be perfected and live forever. Now, with that as a starting point, after the starting point of regeneration, stewarding your temple demands consecration. Consecration. Now, if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Very familiar couple of verses. But how can you talk about the proper stewardship of the temple without dealing with this matter of consecration, the consecration of your entire body? Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you, I urge you, I exhort you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The consecration of your temple, your whole body, is the reasonable, rational act of ongoing worship of daily, personal, ongoing worship. Why should you do this? Why should you so present your body to God to do with as he sees fit and to, uh, to, to, to function in this body in a way that gives him pleasure? Because, as Paul says, of the mercies of God, the compassion of God, the kindness and tender mercies of God toward you. Paul has been writing in Romans chapter 11 about the incredible grace of God in saving sinners from eternal damnation. And on the basis of that salvation, if you have, if you have been regenerated, then the logical response to that is to take this body, this temple in which we, in which we dwell, in which the Holy Spirit dwells, and present it to him as an act of ongoing worship. And notice the act itself. It is an act of presentation. There's, there's an activeness to this. It's not passive. It's active. You present your body as a living sacrifice. Paul, of course, is, he is he's, he's writing using imagery that would be well understood. This was a, this was a, a time and era when the offering of, of animal sacrifices was a typical thing. And you would, you would take your sacrifice, you would take your animal, and that animal would be executed. And then that animal, in its, it, it, as a dead animal, would be placed on an altar that would be burned up. This is a very, very visual way of describing our responsibility of proper stewardship presenting our bodies 
as living sacrifices, not dead, but living sacrifices, meaning that the 24 7, 365 manner of life is one in which our bodies are given to God for Him to use as He sees fit. Set apart unto Him. That's what the word holy means. Set apart unto Him. And this is a sacrifice. This is an offering unto God that is well-pleasing to Him, acceptable to God. So the point is, if you want to live in a way that is pleasing to God, you must consecrate the temple to Him. Now, this is incredibly important because of what verse 2 brings out, and that is that there is this ongoing, subtle influence that wants to pull you away from Him. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul says. Don't you feel the pull all the time, constantly? You feel the pull by a little device in your hands. You feel the pull by by you know, the, 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 way, the way the world thinks, the way people operate and think you're odd if you don't operate that way. You feel the pull by what you're, what you're told by the world is important and that you need to have and that you need to pursue. And it is so easy for the world to squeeze you into its mold. It's subtle. It can be so subtle and so powerful. Therefore, we need to be presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, well-pleasing unto God. There are the poles. There are the poles. There's the pressure. There's the, there's the incessant call uh, by the gods of pleasure the God of physical beauty, the God of fitness, the God of wealth, the God of status, the God of leisure, the God of fashion, and on and on and on we can go. Pull us away from living a 24-7, 365 consecrated life unto God. Yes, we need to consecrate our whole body to Him. But go back a few pages in your Bible to chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and look at verses 11 and following. Romans 6, 11, Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, because you are alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord, therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Notice, notice, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. That echoes Romans 12, or I guess we should say it anticipates Romans 12, 1 and 2, chapter 1, or chapter 12, verse 1. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Present your whole self to Him, the whole temple. But then he says, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, you, you face, and we've already indicated this when we're talking about the, the offering of the whole temple, you face 
an ongoing threat. Verse 13, the ongoing threat is that you, pre, you present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Your members, what is he talking about? Your hands, your feet, your ears, your lips, your eyes, your members of your body. He says, literally in verse 13, stop presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. This is an ongoing threat. So what does he tell us to do? He says, you have a decisive duty to fulfill if you're going to properly steward the temple. And that duty is to present yourselves, present your members, present your life as a whole, present the temple as a whole, but then present your members individually and, and present them as, as members, as instruments of righteousness. So maybe do something very practical. I, I do this daily. I say, Lord, take my hands that I might do today what you would have me to do. Take my feet that I would go where you would have me to go. Take my ears, that I might listen to you and obey. Take my eyes, that I would keep them fixed on Jesus and turned away from that which would be defiling and unwholesome. Take my lips, that I might speak the truth, I might speak it in love, and I might speak with grace. Oh, why do you need to do that every day? Isn't the answer to that question so obvious? Because every day there are ongoing threats to use the hands and the feet and the ears and the eyes and the lips in any way other than those ways. Now, proper stewardship of the temple begins with regeneration. It demands consecration. And now let's go back to 1 Corinthians this time to chapter 9, and look at verses 24 through 27. And here we discover that stewarding the temple requires subjection, requires subjection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a, perish, a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should be disqualified. All right, look what Paul is calling us to do here in the stewardship of our temple that requires subjection. He's calling upon us in, the, in verse 24 to live with a sober sense of reality. He says, look, look, don't you know that you're running in a race? Life is not a lark. Life is not a party. 
Life isn't to be lived from one pleasure to another, as if all of life is supposed to be nothing but pleasure. It's supposed to be one giant party where we're just always, you know, just living for the fun of it. Oh, look, you're, you're, you're in a race. This is serious business. This is a race with a prize that is at stake. We need that kind of a sober sense of reality. I'm not a runner. I said I was on a track team. I was on the field team when I was a freshman in high school. I hated running. I, I hated running. We had to do these, we had to do these uh, fitness tests every year in PE. I think we did them twice a year. We did them the beginning of each semester. And maybe we did them beginning and the end of the semester. I can't remember exactly. I just, I just remember how I loathed them. I didn't mind the pull-ups. I didn't mind the push-ups. I didn't mind the sit-ups. But I hated the two-minute run where you had to get on the track and you had to run as fast as you could for two minutes. And if you survived to get through the two minutes without walking, then you got a little pat on the back. Well, I hated running. I, I never did like running. Now, those of you who do like it, those of you who have run in races, you understand exactly what Paul is talking about. They're, they're, oh, yeah, you get to the point, I hear, where there's a runner's high. You get to this wall, and if you can break through that wall, then it's like, oh, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. But it's up to that point, this is agony. This is, this is tough. This is hard. This is not a piece of cake. This is not a walk in the park, if you will. This is reality. We need to live with that kind of a sober sense of reality. But then in verses 25 and 26, furthermore, this, this sub subjection that's required for proper stewardship of the temple requires us to live with a sharp focus, not on a perishable crown, but the focus, uh, our focus is on an imperishable crown. Goes on to say in verse verse twenty six because I'm because I'm after this I'm focused on this imperishable crown I run not with uncertainty I'm not I'm not just out running haphazard through a field I've got my eye on the prize I'm running with purpose and I'm focused on that prize that imperishable crown what is that imperishable crown well all kinds of speculation about it but I think I think it's simply this. Do you not want to hear, as Jesus, as Jesus said in the parable of the talents, well done, good and faithful servant. There's an imperishable crown. To stand before the Lord Jesus and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, to steward the temple with this sense of subjection, requiring us to live with a sober view of reality and a sharp focus on the prize before us, it requires that we live with rigorous discipline. We live with rigorous discipline. First part of verse 25, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or disciplined in all things. And he's talking about here, he's, he's, he's stepping back and using the illustration of the race. He says, everyone that's running in, a, in that race, he, he is temperate. He's disciplined in all things. Part of the reason that I never really got into the track part of track and field is that I never, I never 
got into the discipline of a program of running and building up the stamina and the strength and so forth needed to be a runner of any kind, sprinter, long distance, not of any kind. Those who have it as a desire to be on a track team, run a marathon, a 5K, or whatever, they realize they've got to train for this. They're going to have to limit their diet. They're going to have to eat certain things and not eat other things. They're going to have to get out and practice running. They're going to have to build their endurance up. They're just going to have to keep working at this, and it requires discipline. I understand that. All right, it, Paul takes that picture, that analogy. He says, look, this is the Christian life. This is the stewardship of your temple. It requires, it requires discipline, making the body do what the body doesn't want to do, such as things very practical like going to bed rather than staying up until all hours of the night or wee hours of the morning watching late night TV. You got to get up in the morning and get to work. Things like eating healthful food in moderation rather than junk food as much as you want. Now, these, these things are matters of discipline, are they not? Making the body do what it doesn't want to do. I mean, seriously, you're sitting at the table, and I shouldn't say this because we're going to go from here to a, to a, a dinner and a meal, and there's gonna, now there's going to be good, healthful, nutritious soup and salad sitting there, and you're going to see that, that you're going to see those two tables lined with, you know, good, good soup, healthful soup, healthful salads. You're going to see bread that, that some of our ladies made, healthful bread. It's not made with a bunch of junk stuff. And, that, and that's going to be those two tables. And then off on the other side of the room, you're going to see this table. And maybe, is there more than one table? Just one. All right. My, my wife says there's only one table of dessert. Yeah, and let's be honest. If you, you're sitting down at the table and somebody brings before you a bowl of chicken noodle soup and a plate of Texas sheet cake, boom, big square of Texas sheet cake sitting there, and you love chocolate, which one are you, which one does your appetite gravitate toward when you pick up? A, a, a utensil. Don't you, don't you want to reach for the fork? But you know, before the fork, I need to use the spoon. Which are you going to do? Well, I know what you're going to do. You're disciplined enough that you're going to use the spoon. You're going to use the spoon. But that's, that's what, this is what Paul is talking about. In, in proper stewardship of the temple, it requires rigorous discipline, making it do what it doesn't want to do. It doesn't want to pick up the spoon. It wants to pick up the fork. It wants to devour the sheet cake and, ha uh, the, yeah, the sheet cake, the whole thing. It does. Discipline says, no, I need to do what it needs. To, I need to do what I need to do. 
I need to make my body do what it doesn't want to do. And you make it do what it needs to do. This is the idea of subjection when he says in verse 27, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. There are goals that are higher than those that the world, the flesh, and the devil is throwing out to you and saying, you need to strive after these prizes. There are higher prizes to be won. And so consequently, to run after those higher prizes may require us to do some of the hard things like Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Make it do the hard things. Stewarding of the temple requires subjection. It begins with regeneration. It demands consecration. It requires subjection. And now let's look back at chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And note, lastly, stewarding your temple involves valuation. Valuation. As we read this earlier, you certainly noted that Paul was writing what he writes in verses 19 and 20 in the context of fleeing sexual immorality and engaging with temple prostitutes. Comes out in verse, thus, part of verse 13. It says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. In verse 15, he says, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. And um, in verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. All right, but then when he gets to verses 19 and 20, he steps back from that specific emphasis on sexual immorality and instead focuses on the body's involvement uh, with sinful things. He steps back from that to focus on general overarching truths. And what are they? First is that the body is to be valued. I didn't say worshipped. I said valued. Why? Verse 19. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is, therefore, to be valued. Just as the Old Testament Israelites highly valued the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. Now, they didn't worship the tabernacle. They didn't worship the temple. They worshiped the God who resided in the temple, who resided in the tabernacle. But they valued those buildings. They valued those temples. Why? Because God dwells there. Why should you, have a, why should you place value on the physical body? God dwells there. That's why. The body is to be valued because of the divine resident. But furthermore, it is to be valued because of divine ownership. Last part of verse 19. The, the temple is the holy, uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you, listen, you are not your own. Your body is not your body to do with as you see fit, to use or abuse in any way that you choose to do. It's not yours. 
In spite of the mantra of the pro-abortion, pro-death crowd, no, your body is not yours. Why? Because it belongs to the one who bought it. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've received him as your Savior, you've not only received him as your Savior, you, you must acknowledge him. You have to, have, have to have acknowledged him as your Lord, as your Master, as the one who owns you. Jesus, verse 20 says, bought you at a price. What was that price? A body that was broken, blood that was shed. It was by his crucified death on the cross that he purchased you, that he bought you. Not just your soul, yes, your soul, not just your soul, but your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body. Listen, your body belongs to Christ. And because you belong to Christ, listen, because you belong to Christ, you and I, we don't have the right to use our body any way that we want to, especially in any way that rebels against him, that engages in what his word prohibits, or that reflects poorly upon him. Your body, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, is to reflect well on its owner. We get that right in verse 20. You were bought with a price, therefore, and this is where the text literally ends, therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. You say, well, in what ways? In every way. Over a few pages in chapter 10, verses 31 through 33, Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, giving no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also, Paul says, please all in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God in every, in every area, every endeavor of life. This is how the temple is to be used. It's to be used in such a way that reflects well on the owner and the resident of that temple. So, as you think about that, maybe some general applications, general applications. You can get more specific personally. If I'm going to steward my temple in a way that uh, reflects well on the owner of that temple, then I would suggest we need to nourish it healthfully. Nourish it healthfully. Taking care, to, taking care to eat those things that are healthful, that are nourishing. Avoid those things that we know are harmful, especially in excess. Nourish it healthfully. Secondly, I would suggest 
rest it regularly. You know, in Genesis 1, on the seventh day of creation, God ceased. He rested. And he used that as a pattern for human life and flourishing. Taking one day out of seven, set apart for a, for a time, a day of rest and, re, and recuperation. Part of the purpose of the Sabbath. And you think of the Old Testament guidelines, that law, really, for the people of Israel. It had built into their calendar and into their structure not only the weekly Sabbath, but there were other Sabbaths, days where they were, they, the days were set apart where the people were told to do no servile work in them, rest in them. Even week-long festivals and celebrations where they were not to do any of their ordinary work. What do we learn from that? The part of proper stewardship of the temple is to rest it regularly. And then, thirdly, a general application, proper stewardship of the, of the temple would involve working it diligently. Working it diligently. Ecclesiastes 9 uh, verse 10, Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Work diligently. Romans 12, 11, Paul says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. What is your, what is your function in life? As an, everyday, as an everyday occupation, vocation, whatever that is, do it with all your might. Work it diligently. And then, Fourthly, as a general application, stewarding the temple would involve employing it selectively. Employing it selectively. You serve the Lord Christ. In Colossians 3, remember, Paul was writing to those who were literal slaves under the, uh, under the authority of and responsible to other human beings. And he says this to them. Whatever you do, he says, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. This is a perspective that we need to have on our, our bodies, our physical bodies, that I am employing it in a day-to-day -day basis, not for myself, not simply to put food on my table or to take care of the necessities of life, but this temple, this body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit is to be employed in the service of Christ. So, when it comes to the temple, your body, are you being a faithful, God-glorifying steward of that which he's given to you? Or the the dutiful slave of some other God. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would challenge us today with some practical applications of these important truths in stewardship. Sometimes, Father, it's easy for, easier for us to accept challenges to be proper stewards of our time, our talents, and our treasure, and then to bristle 
when we're confronted with the need to be proper stewards of this temple. Sometimes stewardship in those other areas is easier than in this. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit who dwells within your people, you would not only challenge us with this need of good stewardship of the temple, but that you would enable us to be those stewards. And this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.